Our scripture lesson this evening is from Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we're jumping back into a series on vocation and especially what does it mean for young people to discover their vocation and, and excel in it. So if you're visiting with us, you can catch up with uh, that series on Sermon Audio. Uh, we have thought about uh, three things, really. We want to ponder vocation, think about the principles of vocation. What is it? Uh, what is work? How does it relate to conversion? And then second, we spent some time thinking about what it means to prepare for vocation, uh, that we develop uh, something to offer the world uh, and that we choose wisely. This now moves us into the third part of the series, which is the practice of vocation, which now uh, I hope even more than before will have something to say to each one of us as we are all practicing a vocation. We're going to have, have, God willing, two more messages in this section and then one sermon to wrap up, uh, particularly on the call to the ministry and how we might encourage uh, the Lord uh, uh, in this congregation, the Lord's uh, w- raising up of ministers uh, into that particular calling. Um, this is the start of the ministry of John the Baptist, who was to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll notice, not um, unintentionally, that John addresses uh, what it means to live uh, faithfully in this world, addresses that to the theme of vocation and spells it out to a couple of different uh, vocational workers. Let us give attention to God's word. Luke 3, 1 through 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not uh, extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages." 
As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Amen. We are acquainted with the command that says this, six days you shall labor and do all your work. And the reason for this commandment is simple. As God says, uh, here's why you shall work, because in six days the Lord worked. The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. We are the image of God. We work because God works. That's the logic of the fourth commandment. But Scripture, what is often forgot, is that Scripture doesn't simply command work. It also requires a particular way of working, right? So, so here in the command, it says, you shall work. But throughout the whole of the Scriptures, it says, and this is how you shall work. Living vocationally is more than getting a job and showing up although that's about all that's expected, it seems, of, of many in the um, workforce today. But it's more than that. How we work says a lot about who we are and what we really believe about God. And so uh, Colossians three twenty three says, we must all work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, or Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we must always abound in the work of the Lord. And don't think that Paul here is speaking uh, to ministers as if the work of the Lord is, is church work or preaching work or counseling work. He's preaching here to his congregation. Work in the Lord in all that you do. Now, here's the problem. Researchers tell us that only about half of professing believers say or believe that Christians should do excellent work in an effort to bring glory to God. I don't understand that, but only half of Christians say that we should do excellent work to bring glory to God. And then, of course, of those who say it, how many do it? Many Christians fail to recognize that our labors, our work, whatever it is that we do, those inglorious jobs that we may undertake, whatever we do is meant to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, as Titus 2, verse 10 puts it. Our work habits, then, can either validate or undermine our claim of repentance and faith. And that's exactly what we learn from Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist here in this chapter exhorted those who came to be baptized in verse 8 to bear fruits. 
in keeping with repentance. In other words, he's saying, don't just come and get baptized. Don't just come and profess your faith. Don't just come and say you're sorry for your sins. Show it by how you live. And he applied such a life to our vocations. In other words, he's saying, show that you are truly repentant and believing when you go to work tomorrow morning. Of those who asked John how to bear penitent fruit, some were tax collectors, others were sinners. And as we heard a little bit this morning, the people uh, who may have heard the tax collectors and sinners ask these questions. What should we do to show that we are truly penitent and believing? Probably some in the crowd would have whispered, get a different job. Stop being a tax collector. Stop being a a soldier, a Roman soldier. Do something that's meaningful for the kingdom. John doesn't say that. He says, collect taxes well. (laughs) It's unbelievable that he says that. (laughs) Collect taxes from us. Uh, Rule over us well, you soldiers. A Jew saying to uh, uh, Gentile soldiers. And John told them how to work as evidence of their new life with God. This passage then suggests several ways that we too can demonstrate repentance and faith at work. So if there has ever been a question of, is this a spiritual topic? Uh, is, Is it right to spend this much time thinking about our vocations? Well, John starts his ministry uh, by speaking about vocation. Technically, his first words were, you brood of vipers, but immediately he goes into vocation. How do I work to the glory of God? How do I show that I'm penitent? And the answer is work. And so I want to reflect with you on five ways that we too can demonstrate repentance and faith at work. Drawn from this passage, number one, you have to be responsible. Responsible. The question asked by the tax collectors and soldiers, which is really the center of the, of the text in a lot of ways, implies that they bore the brunt of the responsibility to work well. Because the question is this, what shall we do? What are we responsible for? How must I work? It's a, it's a, it's a responsive, it's a question that recognizes responsibilities. I'm responsible before God. The question acknowledges, what does that look like? And that's true for you, no matter what your job is, whether it's for pay or not, uh, whether you're climbing in your career or on the other side of things. And, and even in the most micromanaged work environment, each person is ultimately responsible for his work or her work. The soldier here was a man under authority, we learned this morning. And yet he says... What must I do? What must I do? What is my responsibility before God? So the tax collector is in a highly regimented field with all kinds of checking and and all the rest. And he says, what is my responsibility at work? This is true, this, this fact that we are responsible for our work because we are ultimately responsible to God for how we work. Responsible people understand that God has appointed them to his service. That's what these converted soldiers and tax collectors realized. They weren't just working for Rome. 
They were working for God. Their work then matters. And with God's help, they can do the work that has been assigned to them. This is why one writer has said this, responsibility is the key to human identity because it's a recognition that I'm responsible to God. I'm made in his image and I answer to him. We become the people that God made us to be by taking up the work that he's called us to do in the context of sovereign, saving grace. God has called me into his service. I'm responsible to him and I'm responsible for how I work. Our responsibility before God is why Scripture is filled with calls to work well. If you're answerable to God, for God's sake, then how you work matters. And, and it's, it, it, this should be profound to us if we, if we think about it, that even slaves, which, by the way, is the class most singled out in Paul's epistles in terms of uh, understanding how they ought to work, Even slaves, though lacking freedom, had responsibilities to work obediently with a sincere heart, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. We would think that if a person lacks freedom, like a slave does, then surely he's not responsible. Paul says, no, you lack freedom and you're responsible to God for how you work. You then and I, not being slaves, have no excuse for poor vocational performance. A hard boss, yes, we have them. Difficult co-workers, we know what that's like. Personal limitations, we're all limited in our abilities and our uh in our skills and so on. And yet you and I are responsible for being faithful to what the Lord asks of us. Peter puts it bluntly in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift. I wonder wonder where Peter got that from. I wonder if he's thinking about the parable of the talents that his master preached. As each of us has received a gift, use it. What What is Jesus' complaint? One of the servants didn't use it. As each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You are a steward, a manager of God's resources. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it is required of students that they be found, what? Faithful. It is required of students that they be found faithful. That's all you can do as a steward. You can't guarantee results. The, the, the ones who received five and ten talents didn't know for sure what would happen with their talents when they invested them, but they invested them because they knew they were to be faithful. Whether you're stewarding one talent or ten, you're to be faithful. As the Lord tasked each of his tribes to fight in their own territory of the land of Israel. Remember in the, in the uh, assignment of the land, God said, you take this portion of the land, you take this portion to the 12 tribes, and then the tribes subdivided into different parcels, and each family was to take up arms and drive out the pagans from the land. Each had a responsibility, so we are each called by God to do our part. Os Guinness is right when he said, answering our call 
is by its very nature stepping forward to responsibility. And he says, responsibility is obedience by another name. God is calling us to be responsible, calling us to be obedient, calling us to be faithful in our place. How would it change your attitude at work or in the home if God came down to you in the flesh, face to face, and said, my son, I'd like you to change some diapers today. Or my daughter, I'd like you to enter that data today for my sake. Or or we could go through all of our vocations. What if God came to you and said, you do this for me? Well, that's, that's the reality. That's actually what's happening in the call that God has given to us. And so being responsible to God means refusing to work in a fleshly way, compromising our values for the sake of, quote unquote, progress or convenience or reputation or sloth or whatever it might be. Instead of compromising, as one writer put it, the, the vertical dimension of righteousness, that is where we're vertically connected to God, means that we seek to do our work in active, functional, daily reliance on the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We're responsible, and we come to God as responsible creatures in a righteous relationship to Him and, and feeding on Him and saying, Lord, help me to work well the righteous people of God practiced God practiced God's presence in the midst of their labors. After all, as Martin Luther taught, vocation is God's mask. Vocation is God's mask. What does Luther mean by this? He means that God is hidden in vocation. He is present and active, though not perceived in works and offices of human beings. He's there in our works. He's commanding our works. He's receiving our works, as Jesus points out in a parable. And faithfulness and responsibility is the only way to experience God's approval and the respect of our consciences. And so in contrast to what we find in the world what, what says, I'm not responsible to anybody. I'll do my work how I please, when I please, if I show up, if I want to. Christians say, no, I'm responsible to God. And I must be faithful. I'm a steward. I've been given X number of talents, and I need to use them for God's glory. So the question, what should we do? Asked by the tax collectors and the, and the soldiers, the answer is be responsible be responsible. There's another part of our calling here to work well, and that is God says to us, be productive. Be productive. I don't know if you notice as we were reading that that before the tax collectors and soldiers asked John how they could fulfill the vocations to the glory of God, John gave this general exhortation. So there's first a general exhortation, and then there's the particular questions. How should we apply this general exhortation? Here's a general exhortation. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And John laces this warning with urgency 
Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. I, we, we don't cut wood with, with, with axes anymore, but I can only imagine that, that if you're going to do that, you take your axe and you first hold it, the, the axe head at the place where you want to strike. It's already there. It's already laid there. And then you pull back and then, and then you swing. And John says, it's already there. It's already laid there. There's urgency here in terms of being productive, bearing good fruit. And so Christians must work to be as fruitful as possible, not simply showing up and being faithful, but actually being productive. We should labor as if we are profit sharers in the business that we undertake. Now, some are profit sharers perhaps here uh, in a very intimate way, but we all should think, I, I stand or fall with this business. I'm a profit sharer. I want this business to be as successful as possible. Because God has called me to be productive. You work like you're next in line to, you know, by the ba- on the basis of your productivity to take over the business. The scripture then calls us to diligent work. Listen to Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. No halfway work in the kingdom of God. Do it with all your might, whether you're a student or whether you work in an office or whether you're out in a field, whatever you're doing, work with all your might. Whatever you do, Paul says in Colossians 3.23, work heartily. Put your heart into it and your soul into it. The gospel supplies God's people with divine energy to work hard at all we do. It calls for energy. Work is draining. No matter what kind of work it is, done well, work is draining. But God provides the power for us to do what we can do. This is so important for us to work hard, to be productive. In our day of efficiency and shortcuts and life hacks, it's so easy to overlook the importance of hard work. It's putting your nose to the grindstone and working hard. Effective people know that there is no replacement for old-fashioned industry. Be industrious. Work hard. Sweat. Twist your mind in a knot trying to solve the problems. Put your whole soul into your work. Paul says this in Acts 20, verse 35, By the grace of God, uh, he doesn't say that, but we're, we know for sure that it was by the grace of God. But Paul, by the grace of God, Paul accomplished great things, he says to the Ephesian elders. How? By working hard. He says, all that we've done among you, we worked hard. Day and night. With our bodies and our minds. We worked hard. You know that we never slacked. You know that we didn't uh, do only half our parts so that we could be supplied by the other half, the other half by you. Faithful workers do not give themselves to their work, but they do give themselves when they work. Give yourself while you're working. You don't give yourself to the work. You don't become a slave to the work. But while you're working, when you're called to work, give yourself. And with God's blessing, when diligence and skillfulness combine the result is a fruitful life for you and for your neighbor, for the kingdom of God. And that's why Pro, uh, Proverbs and the rest of Scripture commend skillfulness. So it's not, it's not all about working hard. You have to work hard, but work hard skillfully. 
Solomon says this, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Another writer put it this way, work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Work must be good work before it can be called God's work. Don't put Christian, don't, don't slap the label of Christian on your work if you're not working well. Dorothy Sayers, in an essay entitled Why Work, wrote this. She said, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. So when Jesus stepped back from creation and he says with the Father and the Spirit, this is very good. Do you suspect that Jesus said anything different when he worked in his father's carpenter shop? He does his work and he steps back and he says, that's good work. He believes, God believes in skillful work. Christian tax collectors. Yes, Christian tax collectors. There's a real, that, that's a real thing, John says. Honor God by collecting taxes by doing the very thing that most of us don't care much for, they honor God by doing it because it's their calling and they do it well. They collect the right amount of taxes. No more, but John could have also said, no less. Christian soldiers honor God skillfully by doing their part to defend a nation, sometimes doing hard things. Now, don't misunderstand. God doesn't need our productivity The kingdom of God doesn't hinge on your labors, your diligence, or your skillfulness. The God who could, as John says here in the passage, the God who could raise up children for Abraham from ordinary stones could easily get his work done without us. He doesn't need our work. That's humbling for us, isn't it? He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. We can pass from the scene. Someone will step into our place, and God will do his work through us just as well. But he has chosen us to do his work. And so we must strive to be productive for his kingdom. And and then here's an encouragement that productivity that flows from diligent, skillful work is also central to how we find joy in our work. We said before in a previous sermon, especially for young people, don't Don't necessarily follow your passions into work. You don't even necessarily know what your passions are. And if you do, they may not be practical, uh, vocational. But, But learn to do something well, and it will become a passion. I mean, most of us didn't know what we would be passionate about until we got into the field and started started making some progress. And I always say, "I, I, I love what I do because we've learned to be good at it. Someone said this, a person's satisfaction comes in godlike manner from looking upon what he has made and finding it very good. As God stepped back from the universe and said it's very good, we should be able to do the same. To step back from our work and say, not with pride, but with gratitude for what the Lord has done through us, that's good work. That's very good work. By contrast, contentment in poor work is a sign of a compromised heart. If you can step back from poor work and say, well, that's good enough, uh, your heart is compromised. Now, obviously, there are times in life 
uh, in emergencies and in certain, certain projects, good enough is good enough. But in general, we ought to have this attitude of excellence and not be satisfied with poor work. B, in all that you do, strive to be productive. And then there's a third principle that we see from this text, and that is be focused. Be focused. If we compare John's exhortation to soldiers with one of Paul's illustrations in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, we'll grasp the importance of focus. Paul says this, no soldier, so this is part of how John could have answered the question, what should we do? No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Soldier, be focused. Don't don't be distracted in civilian uh, matters. You're a soldier. You do what you are called to do and don't get distracted. Soldiers glorify God by being good soldiers, focusing on the mission to which they were called. And brothers and sisters, we could generalize Paul's observations, not just to soldiers, but we could say no good worker gets entangled in work to which he is not called. Be focused. As you're figuring out your calling, as you you hone in on what God is calling you to do, do that thing and do that thing well. And one one writer on this uh, theme says this, focus is one of the indispensable capacities required for living well and working well. And the reason is simple. As the body, we read in uh, Ephesians 4.16, as the body is healthy when each part does its work. So a healthy society requires everyone to understand their place and fulfill their role. The eye doesn't do ear work. It doesn't get distracted and do footwork or handwork. It does eye work. It, it, it focuses on, on doing eye work. Sadly, this is not normal in the working world. But without a clear aim on the most important goals, most of us fall back on what's easiest. Not what we're called to do, but what's easier or, or what's more most immediately rewarding. Or we think we prove our value by simply being busy, not focused, but busy, just doing something, doing anything. And by the end of the day, we could say, well, I know I was doing something all day. But, but isn't it so that often the more we try to do or the more things we try to take on, the less we actually accomplish? Unless we're busy at the right things, we may miss our callings. Tax collector, collect your taxes. Soldier, don't get entangled with civilian affairs. And we go on through the list. What you're called to do, you do that. And you do it well. And and this is why, as Cal Newport writes, valuable producers are rarely haphazard in their work habits. They know what they should be doing and develop the disciplines to stay on track. Essentially, vocational focus, and granted, it does take some time to understand where you should be focusing. If you're a young person, if you're in college or in high school, you're not, you're not hyper-focused yet. You're just, you're kind of getting a general education. But as we get, uh, gain more progress in our craft, we learn to focus in more and more and do what we're, what we're especially called to do. Vocational focus is simply asking and answering this question, what makes sense for me to do with the time that remains? And that's a question that is is applicable to the time that remains in the day, in the week, 
in a life, in the time that remains, what makes sense for me to do? That's called, the answer to that question is focus. Do what makes sense to do. Don't get distracted by all kinds of things that aren't important to you. So obviously focus essentially means saying a robust yes to what is most central to your mission and saying no to everything else or as much of everything else as you can. Someone put it this way, there is no vocational focus, no vocational integrity and commitment, no capacity to truly engage the here and now without the ability to say no. So you're a contractor in a particular field and someone says, can you do this job? It's sort of construction related. And you say, no, that's not what we do very well. That's not what we do best. We do, we do this thing best. And so you do that. And we say no to everything else, not because we're unkind or ungenerous, but because we've been given a particular field to work in God's world. One writer said this, many capable people are kept from getting to the next level of contribution because they can't let go of the belief that everything is important, or maybe more accurately, that everything is equally important. Everything is not equally important for you in what you do. Some things are centrally important. If you're, if you're a mom, a stay-at-home mom, taking care of your kids is central. It's not as important as some of the other things that could take, take uh, your time. Now, some of those other things, you, you'll, you'll find that they also play a role in doing that central thing, which is taking care of your kids or whatever it might be. But, th- but not everything is equally important. Jesus even had a, had a laser-focused ministry. He said, wise goals, and he pursued them, refusing to stray. Someone once, uh, two people came to him once and said, settle this dispute for us, Lord. And he said, who made me a judge over you? That's not why I've came. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he sets his eyes on Jerusalem and he, and he won't be distracted by anything less than what he's called to do. Focus not only helps us to be better contributors in our calling, it also helps us to enjoy our work. When we're unclear about our responsibilities, our goals and roles, people experience confusion and stress and frustration and all the rest. Focus, as, as, as Scripture says, do the work that you were called to do and excel in it. There's a fourth uh, aspect to the calling to work well in Luke chapter 3, and that is God is calling you and your vocation to be loving, to be loving John reminds us, John the Baptist reminds us in Luke 3, he reminds us of the primacy of love in the pursuit of any vocation. So so before he gets to the particulars, soldier, you do this, tax collector, you do this. In verse 11, he says this, most generally, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a tax collector or if you're a soldier or if you're a truck driver or whatever it is you do, that applies. Love your neighbor. Uh, And and don't love your neighbor by saying, uh, be well-fed and well-clothed. No, as James says, give them your coat. Love your neighbor practically. Love is our primary obligation to our neighbor, whether we find our neighbor at home, at play, or at work. Someone said this, the North Star, that, that guiding star for right use of the doctrine of vocation and for conforming one's calling to the call to follow Christ is Christian love. Am I tracking with Christian love? Am I following that star of Christian love? Love is the Christian's chief vocation. 
everything God tells us to do can be summarized by a single word, Paul says in Galatians 5.14, love. The best part of vocation is to love and serve with gladness and singleness of heart. Uh, One writer commenting on the possibility of or the threat of or the fear of artificial intelligence taking over uh, our callings. And I suppose many of us could be thinking about how AI could take over what we do easily enough. Uh, The writer says this, there remains one thing that only human beings are able to create and share with one another. And that's love. So in that sense, your calling can never be taken over by AI because a machine can't love. You were made to love your neighbor. And if you don't do it, if you don't love your neighbor, you fail the test of vocation. That that is the primary qualification. If you don't love your neighbor, you fail. If you are very good at the technical side of your calling, if you're efficient in the execution of your tasks, if you're an effective manager of people, as Paul might say in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, if you're writing on this theme, if you do all of those things but do not have love, you are nothing and your work truly doesn't matter. In fact, without love, vocation and its bestowal of meaning and purpose devolves into a hodgepodge of disjointed tasks. These are, it's all these things I'm doing, but it has no common purpose brought together, that common purpose being, purpose being to love. Someone said this, particular duties are callings or vocations insofar as the vocation or calling to be a Christian is expressed through them. You have a real calling to be a carpenter or a landscaper if you live out that vocation by being a Christian in your work. Our work is an opportunity to promote human flourishing. And that's true, of course, in part by the goods that we produce, the services that we render, but we also promote human flourishing by treating people as we work as if we truly believed that they are divine image bearers, that they, in a general sense at least, are sons of God, daughters of God. And so love puts my interests at work as well below those of my neighbor. It heartily believes and rigorously practices the truth that service is better than being served, as Jesus says in Acts 20, verse 35. Truly vocational Christians forget about their ego and remember, as someone has said, that some of the most significant work we do is done in obscurity not for ourselves, not for our advancement, not for our reputation. Moms know this, right? It's done in obscurity. No one knows. No one can count how many diapers you changed or meals that you've, you've prepared. It's done in obscurity. But that's how the world goes. In our work, we are investing in people. It doesn't matter what you do. You're investing in people. Our incarnate Savior did not merely perform tasks. He entered into the lives of his beloved people, and so should we. 
the Christian's life, someone has said, his meaning and purpose will always be shaped by the greatness of God and by the presence we offer others. Are you offering others the presence that God allows you to offer to them? As as one who has been enlightened by the, the word of God, are you bringing that enlightenment into the presence of other people, investing in them? Be loving in your vocation, however God is calling you to work. And there's one more thing that I see in Luke chapter 3 that we uh, need to be diligent to do if we're to work well. And that is to be content. To be content. We find ourselves in an odd moment with near record low unemployment, creating a worker's market, and yet only 60% of workers are currently satisfied. And that's an all-time high in terms of satisfaction. 60%. That means about half of people are not satisfied with their work. They're not content. They're not appreciative of it. They're not thankful. And that changes how we work, doesn't it? But a hearty embrace of vocation can change that. And so John tells believing soldiers in verse 14, be content with your wages. What is John implying there? I, I get it. You, you probably should be paid more for, what you, for what's expected of you sometimes as a Roman soldier or could have said the same to a tax collector or to uh, whatever it is that you do, a manager at work. You, you could probably get paid better, probably should get paid, but be content with your wages. Be thankful. Be thankful that you have a job. Be thankful that God has given you an opportunity to, pr- to be productive and you get paid for it. He might have added this. Be content with the whole of the vocation God has given you, not just your wages, not just that funny uniform with a red plume on top of your hat. Be content with the whole thing, everything God has given to you. We, and, and we achieve contentment partly, I would say mainly, by resting in God's providence. Instead of complaining, instead of despairing, you mean I've got to do this for another 20 years? Well, maybe, maybe not. Instead of envying others, oh, I wish I was in their position. I wish I had their job. I wish I had their paycheck. Well, you don't know, of course, what they, what's all demanded of them and so on, but... John Calvin explains how vocation, the doctrine of vocation can foster contentment, satisfaction, appreciation. He says this, no task will be so troublesome provided you obey your calling in it that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. You you take on tasks as, as I do as well that are troublesome, that are difficult, but it won't be so difficult, not so troublesome, not too hard, as long as you, you obey your calling in it. And if you do, it will shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. You can be content with your work because God loves what you do if you do it well. Of course, not all work is stimulating. Not all work is immediately rewarding. Some work feels useless. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, it's fine to seek more rewarding labor. Paul says to slaves, 
keep doing your work, but if you can gain your freedom, do it. It's okay to, to look for more rewarding work. But in the meantime, before that more rewarding work comes your way, discouraged workers should believe, as one person has said, that by God's grace, we do more good than we know. You, you do more good than you know in your work. You, you, you might say, and I, I suspect you have said at one point in your life, I, if someone says, what do you do? And, and maybe you thought they were looking for something glorious, like you really wanted to say, I run a, a Fortune 500 company, or I do this or that, I do. But you have to, and, and so you answer the question, you say, well, I only, and then fill in the blank. I only, you know, I'm only, I'm, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Or... I only fix cars, or I only cut grass, or I only drive a truck, or I only, I only, I only. You don't. That's not true. You you don't only fix cars. You, You don't only cut grass. You don't only drive a truck. You are the hands and feet of God in the service of others, in the work that you do. I know some of you pass the same sign that I pass frequently. It's a plywood yard sign in the shape of a tractor and a trailer. And it says, if you own it, a trucker delivered it. Thank God for truckers. Right? Thank God for, if, if I own anything, it's probably because a trucker delivered it to me. I'm so thankful for the things that God has put in my life. Thank God for truckers. Thank God for mechanics who do an honest job for honest pay. I was playing cards with some friends in a shop the other day, uh, yesterday, and there's a, there's a, a pickup truck in the shop on a, on a lift of some sort or parked, parked around a lift, and the whole front of the truck is gone. The engine's gone, the whatever else is gone from the front. There's no hood. And I said to one of the guys, if the, if the, um, if the future of the human race depended on me reassembling that truck, the human race would expire. I could not do it. I could not reassemble that engine. I don't have it. Thank God for mechanics who do an honest work for honest pay. Thank God for landscapers who beautify God's creation. And we could go on and on. You don't just do ordinary work. If you are working hard at a legitimate calling, you are truly solving the world's problems. The world has problems. Things break down. Things need to be delivered. Things need to be improved. You're solving those problems. If you're working hard in a legitimate calling, someone said it this way, the good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. Have you ever done an unhistoric act? Have you ever done a, 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 a part of your job that's not going to be put down in the annals of history? Yeah, probably every single one of your works is unhistoric. Me too. He goes on to say, and that all things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number of who those who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. That's why why life is is as good as it is because people do good work in, in unrecognized ways. No one, in other words, is a mere worker, a mere anything, fill in the blank. There's no such thing. Michael Berg uh, said this, all vocations, all vocations are higher than us. 
we are lifted up to them. They are divine. It is a privilege to be God's co-worker. It's the highest honor. There is no stooping low into a job that is beneath us because all vocations are higher than us. You can't stoop down to fill a vocation because that vocation is given by God. It's higher than you already. You have to step up into the vocations that God has given to us. And what many people learn, and some people sadly don't, is that vocational contentment can deepen over time. Perseverance often leads to the honing of skills which can cultivate satisfaction and contentment. And so don't be, don't be too quick to change jobs. John Calvin put it this way, beware of vocationally hurrying, he says, hither and thither always finding a new job to try to do because you can never be satisfied with your job. Don't, don't be scurrying hither and thither as if harassed by a continual restlessness. John Calvin might have said, uh, first of all, it doesn't look good on a resume to be constantly going from one job to another. But most importantly, it cancels the challenging but rewarding discipline of contentment. Stick with what you're doing. Stick with what you're doing. Get good at it and learn to find joy in it instead of always looking for the next thing. Let me close by saying this. As uh, William Perkins put it in his treatise on, content, uh, on uh, vocation, a calling is like a compass that shows us the direction in which we approach God even in our ordinary labors. And because of that, we're to work well. All Scripture speaks to us about how to live. And so we can come to Scripture and ask this question, how should I work? And then we gain the answer and we do it with all our heart. Amen. Let's come to God. Lord, we pray that you would take these truths from Luke chapter 3 and press them on our hearts and work them out into our lives for your glory and our good. In Jesus.